0: Father, uh, we thank you for the freedom to come into a place and offer up our worship to Jesus. And we thank you, God, that this is not just the practice of religion. Uh, We're not trying to appease you or be good enough for you to pay attention to. We really come into this place aware that uh, we have sinned. We have broken your law in so many ways. We would be embarrassed to enumerate them. But Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ and we come to you as his disciples and his followers and we come asking you to be our teacher and to make us more like our master, Jesus, our savior, Jesus. And would you do that now as we study your word? Would you teach us and speak to us as only you are capable for this we ask in Jesus' name? Amen? Well, we've been spending a few weeks discussing a very touchy, difficult challenging subject, uh, the subject of money and our stuff. Why are we talking about this? Well, We're not talking about it because the church is in some kind of financial pinch or anything like that. In fact, you've been very gracious in your giving. We're simply talking about these things because they are incredibly relevant to us living in the culture in which we live. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we looked at a chapter of scripture, Luke chapter 12, where Jesus teaches on money and things. And this is where Jesus challenges conventional wisdom. The wisdom of our culture, he challenges it when he says things like, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Well, who says? Well, Jesus says. Jesus says. Uh, Jesus says not to worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Jesus says, your father... Your heavenly father knows that you need certain things. He knows that even before you know it, says Jesus. And not only that, he says, your father has been pleased to give you an inheritance. Well, what? What is that inheritance? Well, it's the kingdom. It's his very kingdom. And, and these facts or truths that we've looked at the past couple of weeks should make a difference in the way we manage our stuff. You see, the truth is, it's easy to put our trust, we've learned, in our money, uh, to think that in our money, that's where our security comes from. And it's easy to get our, our sense of value based on how much stuff and money I might have, to get my identity from that. And Jesus says, when you, when you think that way and when you act that way, you are being a fool. That's what he says. Remember he told that story about the man who was actually experiencing some great crop harvests and so much so his barns were too small and he's thinking what do I do and, and when, what's best for my future and he decided to tear down the barns and build bigger barns so he could store more stuff so that his future would be secure and God comes to that man the very night he makes that decision and he says you fool because tonight you die. And he hadn't laid up anything to be rich toward God. He was just getting rich for himself. He's a fool, says Jesus. Today we're going to finish this little series. Amen? I want to be done with it too. No, I do. I'm not kidding. I'm as convicted on these things as any of you are. But we're going to finish this little series by looking at another place where Jesus talks about money. And before we look at that passage, I just want to take a little informal poll Uh, I want to see kind of where we stand as a church, and I want to see whether or not you can tell the truth in church. (laughs) These are some statements. Uh, I'll read the statements. You decide if the statement is true or false about you, okay? I have on occasion spent money unwisely. (laughs) A few of us have done that. I have on occasion thought that my money is my money. Anybody? I have on occasion been resistant to any idea of giving any of my money away to anyone or anything else. Mm -hmm. Well, if you said yes to any of those, then you're like me. You need to hear this message and wrestle with what Jesus has to say to us. And if none of those statements were true about you, well, then it's still good that you're here with that person with whom you came because I'm sure all those statements are true about them, right? (laughs) You see, here's what I think happens to us in the culture in which we live, the most affluent culture probably in the history of uh, the human race. Here's what I think happens to a lot of us. We live in a world where we are constantly bombarded with messages that just tell us that we should want more, and we should make more, and we should acquire more, and when we get more, we should hold on to more. And then we even compare ourselves to to people around us, because there's always people who've got more, right? There's always somebody out there that's got more than you have, and that stimulates that desire in us for even yet more. And then sometimes, too, we worry about the future. I'm getting ready to retire and, uh, you know, I sometimes think about the future. Am I going to have enough? Uh, I'm hoping some of you have some guest quarters where Holly and I can come live when we run out of money. (laughs) Am I going to have enough? We are tempted to think that our future will somehow be secure if we just have more, you see. And so wanting more and getting more and keeping more is a very, very Difficult mindset to break or to change. And I think our only hope, in fact, of breaking that way of thinking, the, the, the very culture that we've been uh, enculturated into, the only way to break that is to understand and deeply personalize the ideas that we encounter in Jesus' story, in Jesus' life, in Jesus' teaching this morning. Uh, Jesus is essentially going to teach us three things. I'm going to give you the punchline at the beginning. So if you want and you feel like you've got these, you can just get up and leave after I give you these three things. Save yourself a lot of time. Here are the three. The first idea is that our God, Jesus calls him our heavenly father, is an incredibly generous, gracious, good God. More than we can imagine. That's point number one. Point number two is what we have is not ours. That's that's point number two. The third point is what we do with what we have is incredibly important. That's point number three. In fact, what we do with what we have even has eternal kinds of implications to it, says Jesus. Now, this brings us to the story that we have this, this episode in Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 25. And you can turn there if you like, or you can look on the screen behind me and read along as we engage with this text. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Jesus is teaching. And he says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money and to another two talents and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. And the man who had received the five talents went out at once and put his money to work and gained five more. And so also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And the man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. And I skip this part. I don't want to skip this part. Verse 21, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The, the man with two talents does the same. And the master replies, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And so I was afraid and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And the master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I return, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hmm. The word of God. You know, one of the things right at the beginning of this story, which Jesus tells that would have been very striking to all of Jesus' listeners who were hearing him say these things for the first time, uh, that is this statement. Jesus says, The man going on a journey called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Well, you see, in those days, there weren't really large corporations. There was government, and then there were Families And the vast wealth of the nation rested largely in the hands of a few families, really. A few very, very wealthy families in each and every tribe. Wealth was concentrated uh, in the wealth of a few families. And this is a family, this is one of those families, a very, very wealthy family. In this, in this story, Jesus is talking about staggering sums of money. In fact, you won't understand this story at all unless you appreciate that fact. One talent, for example, was worth 10,000 denarii. A typical daily wage for a laborer was one denarii. So one talent represented 10,000 denarii, more than 27 years of work for a common laborer, right? Right? Five talents would be about 136 years of daily labor for a common laborer. In that day, many people lived from one day to the next. They didn't have banks. They didn't have 401ks. They didn't have savings accounts. One denarii was a decent amount of money for one day's work. A talent, 10,000 denarii you understand, represented a staggering amount of money. It represented a fortune. And so Jesus is talking about something that no one would ever, ever, ever expect to happen. A servant being given a vast sum of money to manage. It would be a Literally, a chance of a lifetime, a life-changing opportunity for that servant. It would be like Elon Musk, wealthiest man in the world, although that changes almost daily, saying, Dwayne, Dwayne, here, here's a billion dollars, Dwayne. I want you to manage it for me. I want you to keep it safe, grow it, use it. Here you go. There's your opportunity. It, it would be my opportunity, obviously, in that circumstance, to take some initiative, right? Right? It would be my chance to do some research, to use good judgment, to get wise counsel, and to serve my now boss well. Who knows what this will lead to? What an opportunity this is. What graciousness on his part to me. And you won't get this story unless you understand that it starts for each of these three servants with this literally chance of a lifetime. Their master is being unbelievably good to them. This is an act of staggering generosity on the part of the master. And I don't know if you noticed there in verse 15, it says that the master gives each according to his ability. This is a master who knew something about each of his servants. And he's not going to overwhelm any of them. He he knows something of their performance, what they've done, how well they've done it. And he's selected them and given them things to manage, talents to manage based on their actual abilities. That's a loving, caring, gracious, wise master right there. Now, it's also a statement of confidence, of course, that he selects these three servants. Each servant should have been thinking, probably were thinking, oh my goodness, my master... Is believing in me, is trusting in me. I don't want to mess this up. I need to show him I am trustworthy. I am grateful for this incredible opportunity. And this also explains another little phrase in the story. Verse 16, Jesus says, The man who received the five talents went out at once. <laughs> yeah, of course he did. You bet. This was a big, big deal. This was a big, big chance of a lifetime, as I've been saying. He went out at once in order to make the most of this opportunity. Now, in this story, it's very important for us to understand, too, the answer to the question, to whom did the money belong? (laughs) Jesus is underlining this fact. This is one of his big points in this whole story that he tells. To whom did the money belong? Was it the master's money or was it the servant's money? Anybody? Oh, it was the master's money. Yeah, the master was the owner. And the servants were stewards. And here's the thing. And Jesus knew this, knows this about us. We'll never get the money thing right. We just never will successfully battle the the never-ending craving for more, more, more if we don't settle the ownership issue. This is a lot of what discipleship is about. And, And here's the deal. We all have a problem with this ownership issue. We all do. Nobody is exempt. This is an example that I've uh, used before, but I liked it, and so I'm going to use it again. I got it out of a scholarly journal uh, called the Reader's Digest. You ever read that? (laughs) It helps make the point. That's why I'm going to use it. Woman is in an airport waiting to board a plane. She buys a little package of Oreo cookies, right? And she's waiting there, sitting down. There's a man next to her, uh, just seated in the chair right next to her, and she doesn't know him. He doesn't know her. Um, And there on the armrest between the two of them is this little package of Oreo cookies, right? Without saying a word, the man reaches down and grabs one of the Oreo cookies and, you know, takes a bite, eats it. And she sees this and she's instantly furious. This man is taking and eating her cookies. And so she reaches down in the bag and she's with disgust, reaches down and takes a cookie and pops it into her mouth. And he just smiles and he just kind of nods his head again, probably doesn't speak English. And then, then he reaches in and he takes another cookie and she's now livid. I can't believe it. He's, he's gone the next step and he's eating another one of her cookies. And they both keep doing this until there's only one cookie left. And then the man reaches down and breaks it in half and offers her half of the cookie <laughs> at which she of course refuses because she is disgusted by this man who would just eat her cookies. Finally, the plane boards. she goes on the plane and thank God she's not seated next to that guy. So she takes her seat, reaches into her pocketbook as she's settling things in her seat and discovers her bag of cookies is still in her purse. Not only did the gentleman not eat her cookies, she was angrily eating his cookies the whole time and didn't even know it. And here's the thing. We have a cookie problem, friends. <laughs> we do. We have a huge cookie problem. We have some cookies, but whose cookies are they really? We think they're ours. And we wrestle with this ownership issue. You ever been around a two-year-old, and what's a two-year-old's favorite word besides no? No. Because that's, that's probably their favorite word. What's their next favorite word? Yeah, everybody knows this. Everybody has been around a two-year-old knows this. Mine, my stuff, my blankie, my toy, my doll. And of course, none of it is actually theirs. They didn't earn the money to purchase it. They don't earn the money to, to make it uh, available day in, day out. None of this is their stuff. Yet they live under that illusion. They don't realize it's been given to them. Thank goodness only a two-year-old can be that foolish. (laughs) Turns out I have a lot of two-year-old in me. And maybe you do too. And I'll tell you what, this, uh, this whole message could be a really short one if we could just get this ownership issue right. But we don't. We forget who owns what almost immediately. You see, if I go through life acting like an owner of everything I've got, saying it's my stuff, I earned it, I own it, I'll spend it any way I want to spend it. I will spend it on me when it's not even my stuff. What an affront that would be to the owner, right? How rude that would be, how selfish that would be, how ungrateful that would be. You see, a steward realizes that none of what they have is theirs. Not really. It's just been entrusted to their keeping. It actually belongs to someone else, someone that gave it to them. It belongs to their master. So, master, what do you want me to do with what you have given me? Becomes the posture of a steward. That's the real question. And when we think that we are owners, we have a a very, very, very mistaken identity. Because here's the thing, and we've talked about this. There's reality and then there's unreality. Do you want to live in reality? Well, here's the reality. Stewardship is the reality. That's the way things really are. Ownership ownership is an illusion a very enticing and a very convincing one in our society, but stewardship is the reality. Jesus says one day this will all become very clear. You know, uh, the day you die is a day when you get clear about what you actually owned and what you can actually keep, right? That's one very important day. Nobody, unless you got a really huge casket or tomb where you can dump a lot of stuff in there. I don't know what good it'll do you, but you kind of get the message when you die, oh, that wasn't mine, (laughs) Jesus says there's another day when we'll we'll get that message. When all this becomes very clear in verse 19, he says, After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. After a long time, sometimes a servant can start to get a little crazy about stuff and about money. After a long time, the servant starts to think that the master's stuff might be his stuff. But Jesus says, after a long time, the master returns. And the master wants to know, what did you do with the stuff that I entrusted to you? What did you do with it? How did you use it? Jesus wants us all to be very clear. That day is coming, friends. That day is coming. The day we will stand before the master. We will stand before God himself. And we will give an account of what we did with his stuff. How we used his stuff. And God is going to say to us in one fashion, form, or another, you know, I gave you the chance of a lifetime. I mean, I gave you a body to use. I gave you a mind to use. I gave you work to do that you could do that would earn you an income. I gave you a house to live in. I gave you all kinds of resources. You make a list. Time, talent, and your treasures. All of that I gave you. What did you do with them? How did you use them? How did you make it clear to others that what you had was a gift that I gave you? How did you bless others with it? There's something else in this text that that bothers me a little bit, and that's, that's this phrase, settling accounts, that settling accounts thing. That's a sobering part of this story. The fact that the master is so incredibly generous and gives this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, uh, that's good news, absolutely good news. But this accountability thing, this settling of accounts thing, well, that's sobering news. There's an odd tendency in human beings to think that we can somehow get out of, you know, harm's way when it comes to settling accounts. Uh, You know, we can charm our way out, finesse our way out, even buy our way out of the consequences of our actions. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not going to happen. This attitude kind of develops in us uh, early again. Uh, you're going to think I, all I did for this sermon was read Reader's Digest, because here's another story from Reader's Digest. Sometimes the best sermons come out of Reader's Digest, but uh, this is a true story. It's in one of those sections of Reader's Digest, where a funny, true little stories, family stories. So there's a seven-year-old boy who was having a real bad day, real bad night. The family was settling down for dinner. This little boy had already been warned quite a few times to rein it in, you know, (laughs) stop teasing and fighting and, you know, so on with his sister. And and that if he didn't stop, there were going to be some serious consequences. So he'd had fair warning. And now they're seated at the table. He wasn't listening and he reaches over the table to get at his little sister. And in so doing, he spills a full glass of milk, goes everywhere on everything. And the parents said, okay, you know the consequences. And to the parents utter shock and amazement, this seven-year-old little boy reaches into his pocket, pulls out a dollar bill and slaps it on the table and says, maybe Mr. Washington can change your mind. Who knows where he saw that, (laughs) but he saw it somewhere and and he saw that it worked in that situation. Seven years old, right? Starts early. Jesus says, there is one before whom we will all stand someday. And he really will settle accounts with us for everything. And he will want to know what we did with what he gave us and he will, we will not be able to finesse our way out of that conversation in any way, shape, or form. Mr. Washington will not change his mind. The master is coming back, says Jesus. Two of the servants have invested what their master gave them with a lot of wisdom, I'm sure with a lot of gratefulness, but the third one did not. He just buried it in the ground. And then he tries to finesse his way out of this conversation. Something that's interesting to me is that all three of these men are servants, of course. And two of the three believe in their master, it would seem. They trust him. They're no doubt grateful to him. They appreciate this opportunity and and the master's goodness. And they demonstrate it by how they handle his stuff. One of them, however, clearly does not. And there are serious consequences, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But before we do, I want us to notice that Jesus does something that's a little bit unusual in this parable. Usually when uh, Jesus is telling a parable about something that honors or pleases God and something that uh, does not, there are usually two characters in a parable. Uh, One who does the right thing and the other who does the wrong thing. For example, the parable about the wise man who builds his home on the rock, right? And then there's that other one who builds his home on the sand. The flood comes and washes it away. And there's the story about the Pharisee who prayed with arrogance and pride and hubris. Thank you, God, I'm not like this tax collector, he says. And then there's the tax collector, right? It's so humble, he can barely, he can't even look up to God. He can't, he, all he can do is, is pour out his, his life, his heart, his sins to God and ask for forgiveness. Two characters, But in this story, there are three characters. It's kind of interesting. Why? You know, one of them gets five talents, 136 years worth of labor wages. One of them gets two talents, 54 years of labor wages. But both of these men receive the same commendation from their master, which is interesting. And the reason I think that is Jesus wants to teach us that it's not about how many talents you are given. You may have more than someone or you may have less than someone. It's not about your resources compared to somebody else's resources. That kind of competition and comparison misses the whole point. The only question that God is going to ask you and me is what did you do? with what I gave you? Did you act like a steward responding to the owner, the master? He's not going to ask us, what did you do with what I gave to somebody else? This is just about you and I using what we have been given in service to our master. Now, the one talent guy says this to the master. He says, master, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And so I was afraid and I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And that's kind of interesting to me. What that tells me is that this servant didn't really know the master very well. He fears the master Even though the master had been nothing but incredibly gracious to him, and now the one-talent guy tries to finesse his way out of this, right? I knew that you were a hard guy, he says to the master. I knew that you'd want money, your money back, and so I didn't want to lose any of it, so I, I buried it. The master uses these two kind of extraordinary words to describe this third servant. And this again is quite sobering to me when I read this, makes me gulp. He says, You wicked and lazy servant. Wow, that's striking. We don't use those two words together really ever, hardly wicked and lazy. Historically, Christians took laziness very seriously, so seriously that it was listed as one of the seven deadly sins, laziness. But uh, we live in an era where it would be such a blight on your character to acknowledge that you're lazy, that nobody ever acknowledges laziness in any way, shape or form, right? Right. We all think we work really, really hard. And when we go to apply for a job and they ask us that dumb idiot question, so what are, what are some of your weaknesses? We say dumb idiot things like, oh, you know, uh, one of my biggest faults would be that I'm kind of a workaholic. Uh, You know, I just don't know when to quit. I have such high standards for performance that, you know, I just can't turn it off. I'm just constantly thinking about the job and achieving goals and making sales and improving my performance. I probably push myself too hard. Blah, 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 you know. Nobody, nobody interviewing for a job ever says, you know, my biggest problem is that I'm just too darn lazy. <laughs> I, I could sit on the sofa all day long and watch TV be happy as a clam doing that. Unbelievable how lazy I am. <laughs> nobody says that. Laziness, uh, more specifically, as Jesus means it here, doesn't necessarily mean inactivity. That's kind of interesting. Laziness, as Jesus uses it here, is the a, More about the refusal to do what should be done when it needs to be done. That's kind of the the tenor of this this word as Jesus uses it. It's a refusal to carry out the one thing that's been assigned to you to do. Like the kamikaze pilot who flew 17 missions. You know, they're missing the point. (laughs) They're not doing what they were sent out to do, right? They are disobeying, yeah. It's striking to me that Jesus is so serious about disobedience in this area. The area of using the stuff the master has given to us uh, and using it wisely and using it well. Apparently it's a big deal. Through the centuries, uh, there were readers of scripture, interpreters of scripture that had real difficulty with this particular story that Jesus told, this parable, this story. In the second century, in fact, there's an instance of it being rewritten. It's in a document that today we refer to as the gospel of the Nazarene. It tells this exact same parable of the talents, but the writer adds a sentence that Jesus never said or never actually put in the story. The writer says that the one talent servant blew all of his money on harlots and flute players. That's what he says. He thought that the guy must have done something really, really, really bad with this money and just burying in the ground wasn't bad enough and as opposed, you know, to, to uh, doing something like hanging out with harlots and flute players. But Jesus doesn't say that. That's not what this servant is called on the carpet for, held accountable for harlots and flute players. In Jesus' parable, the servant is judged because of what he did not do. He just buried the talent. He had a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but he was afraid. The things that the master entrusted to him, he just buried. He didn't use it or invest it in any way, which is what we do when we take what God gives to us and we use none of it for his kingdom, none of it for his glory. It's like bearing it, only worse, because we're just using it for ourselves. Uh, A biblical teaching that's quite important, but not really addressed in this text, is the subject of tithing, the subject of giving. And I know Christians differ on whether uh, tithing is um, something that's uh, still a practice we should be doing today. Uh, And even if that's the position you take, I would say, uh, so you, you think God is suggesting that we do a whole lot less than they did in the Old Testament since Jesus has come and died for us and risen from the dead and given us eternal life. Okay, if that's where you want to go, you go there, but I'm not. Uh, Set aside that issue, this whole tithing, giving thing. uh, You know, in the Bible, there's this principle, and and this I think we could all agree on, there's this principle that's laid down that most of what God gives us, in fact, nine-tenths of what God gives us, God wants us to use for ourselves to meet our needs, nine-tenths, to put food on the table, to provide shelter, to uh, save for the future so that uh, we will have uh, the ability to care for ourselves. And so we use $9 out of every 10 for that purpose, which again, I would say is incredibly generous and gracious and kind. And um, yet to break the insanity of what money does to us, this thing we've been studying. To break the cycle of thinking that I always need more, to have more value, to be more secure, I always need more. I would say the Bible teaches that we've been given the tool of regular giving uh, to help us, to help us remember who to trust in, right? To help us remember who to value, where to get our value from, and to Help us remember who's the master. This, this giving thing is actually investing in kingdom kinds of things. That's what it's about. Everything from helping the poor, helping a neighbor that has a need, extending the kingdom uh, through the ministries of a church, those kinds of things. Those are kingdom things. In this parable, Jesus focuses more on the owner issue than on that tithing or specific giving thing. He focuses on making use of what the master has given to us, to the stewards, right? And the one talent guy in our story, he does nothing, nothing to invest his master's Money And there are real consequences for this guy, scary consequences. The master calls the five-talent servant and the two-talent servant to himself, and he says, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. Now, that's, that's a little bit of a irony because this isn't really a few things. But in Jesus' story, he underplays, he downplays that. You have been faithful using this money-talent stuff, which is not that big of a deal anyway. You have been faithful with a few things. Uh, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 denarii, multiple lifetime fortunes. The master says you've been faithful with a little. Now I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness, he says. And I hope you can see that that this is a gracious, life-giving master who calls us on An adventure, a life adventure with him. And when we demonstrate faith and trust and obedience, what does he do? Well, he does what he doesn't have to do. He actually rewards us by someday putting us in charge of more and more and more things. More important things. And by blessing us with his own joy and his own happiness. The point is this adventure starts here. It starts now in this life, this training. Meaning that what we do now with what he gives us to steward matters. It actually matters for our future. If we trust God with the resources he's given us, if we make our life a kind of kingdom investment, the reward is that we get to see God at work in people around us and we get to partner with him in that. And more and more and more, we see the coming of God's kingdom and the reality of God's working. And that, friends, should make us radiantly joyful people because nobody who gives and serves and loves deeply fails to become a more joyful person. And there's been tons of research around that to actually demonstrate that that is true. The happiest people on earth are not the richest. They are the ones that find significant ways to invest in the lives of others to serve other people. Now, I think part of the reason that is true is because when you do those kinds of things, when you live generously, well, guess what? You're actually looking like and becoming more like Jesus himself. The one who literally sacrificed everything for you and me. The one who came and set it all aside, all the glory, all the riches that he had, set it all aside to come here so that he could lay it down, even his life down to die for you and me. We become more like Jesus when we live that way. Our lives are not just about us anymore. Our life becomes about loving God by loving other people, helping others know Jesus, helping with the needs that people have around us. Why? Well, because Jesus loves us. And when I recognize that I'm a steward, that God is the owner of my life and my stuff and my money and my time and the abilities that I have, he's given me these things to steward. Well, then trusting God to to guide and use me, I, I invest in his kingdom. Things that further his work, like helping the poor, is one, a big one. I invest in things that bring God glory and things that advance his kingdom. Here's the deal the master is, in fact, looking for people that he can entrust his stuff to, people who will faithfully administer and use his stuff, people he can put in charge of more and more and more things. To those people, he says, come and share your master's happiness. It's like saying, come and be like me. Friends, this is amazing. The stuff that God gives us has a purpose. Two, really. One is to provide for us and our families. It's remarkable, but it's true. Remember the last couple of weeks, you know, uh, we have a heavenly father Jesus has taught us. That heavenly father cares a great deal about us, knows what all of our needs are and promises to provide them. That's Luke chapter 12. That's the promise that Jesus taught us. That's one thing we're supposed to do with what he gives us. There's a second purpose and that is to train us in faithful stewardship, which means using what he's given us, not solely for ourselves, but to serve him. And in serving him, serving others. And that's Jesus teaching here. The three things I told you at the very beginning of this message. Our God, our Heavenly Father, is an incredibly generous, good, and gracious God. And what we have is not ours. We are stewards of it. And what we do with what we have is incredibly important for the future. In fact, here in our text, Jesus seems to be saying that if you don't steward the master's resources well, then perhaps that indicates that you don't know the master well. Look at the way Jesus ends this parable. Again, uh, he says, his master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered. That's not agreement. That's a rebuke, by the way. He's rebuking this servant. The master isn't saying, oh yes, you, yeah, that's right. That's who I am. No, he's saying, since that is who you think I am. Well, then he says, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. So that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. You, you see, putting the money on deposit with bankers literally takes almost no effort, no energy, no thought whatsoever. And this, this servant didn't even do that. And so the master master pronounces judgment on him. He says, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. The master is blessing the faithful servant. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. That's a blessing simply for being faithful. Remember he said, more, you'll get more. You'll be in charge of more. Whatever... Does not have, whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. That's judgment for being unfaithful with what you've been given. You don't have because you were not faithful. <laughs> you didn't even try to be faithful. So in the end, in the final analysis, you'll lose what you have, which is, of course, what happens. It happens when we die, when our life ends. We, we lose what we have. We give an account, you know? Now, the master declares that this so-called servant is really no servant at all. He does that in verse 30 and, and, know that, that, and throw that worthless servant uh, outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the way this servant uses the things that have been given to them indicates something about the true condition of the servant's heart. He's given all these resources, uses none of them to honor his master. And in so doing demonstrates that he didn't really know the master well at all. So what should we do with all this? I've set up just a beautiful picture, haven't I? I should say Jesus did. Because this is where Jesus leads us. What do we do with this, Jesus? We're all guilty. Is there anybody here that has managed everything, all the resources that you've been given perfectly well and honored God with every penny of it? Raise your hand. I want to see who you are. See, we're all guilty here. It's a big problem. What do we do with this? Well, we repent. And we run to Jesus, who alone can give us the righteousness that we need to stand before our Heavenly Father. Jesus alone, his spirit, his word can change us and make us more like himself. You see, if you have been living as if our master, our heavenly father is not incredibly generous and good, if you have been living as if the stuff you have is your stuff and not stuff God has given to you, if you have not been using a a, a good deal of your stuff, a 10th of your stuff to honor the master, to worship the master, to further the master's kingdom, then repent. Run to Jesus. You're not gonna find him doing this. You're gonna find him waiting for you. He loves you knowing who you are, knowing who we are, right? Repent. Just admit, wow, I've been mishandling this stuff. And ask him for a plan. I know some of you, your finances are so bad, you couldn't tithe if you wanted to. You'd go to jail. Well, get a plan for fixing that. Get a plan for honoring him in your finances. Get a plan for how to invest in kingdom kinds of things. It's not that difficult. Look at your budget if you need someone to talk to. um, If you want to talk to somebody who's... Pretty lousy at all this stuff that will make you feel good about yourself. Come talk to me. <laughs> but get a plan for what to do. Repent. Be forgiven. Look to Jesus, not yourself, for your righteousness. And then get a plan to put your finances in a place where things of eternal importance are being accomplished with the stuff you've been given. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is one of those things every one of us in this room have been impacted by our culture. Every one of us has at times uh, considered our value to come from what we have or what we earn. Every one of us looks to money thinking that that is where our security is. That is where our future is. And God, we repent. You say that's just not true. You teach us Jesus in this passage that, Our God is our master and he is the giver of every good gift. You've taught us that he will provide for us. He will enable us to have what we need. God, give us the grace to believe that. Give us the grace to have a plan for how to honor you with our finances. And may all of us, God, may all of us discover the incredible joy of being invited into the happiness your happiness, the happiness of the master, simply because we are taking the things that he has given us, yes, using it for our own needs, but using it for kingdom things as well, God. May we know that joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.